Hello and welcome to another episode of Film Exploration with Ash Hari and today we'll be talking about the 1995 film Seven directed by David Fincher and starring Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt, Gwyneth Paltrow and Kevin Spacey. Enigmatic as it is thrilling, this piece of unsettling saga takes place in a backdrop of a city that we're not even aware of and for good reason, it's not important. What is important is the horror that unravels within this city, a serial killer. What Fincher does so well is to pick and choose what to unravel to the audience and what to explicitly show in graphic content to which helps cement these horrific emotions and images deep within the stomach of the viewers, long enough for the shock revelation at the end to make this one of the most twisted but memorable movies to be made in the last half century. The movie, in a nutshell, explores a mysterious serial killer, funnily enough, killing people in a relation to the seven deadly sins, and on the case is rookie first-day-on-the-job Detective Mills, played by Brad Pitt, and this old-timer detective, soon-to-be-retired Detective Somerset, played by Morgan Freeman. This movie stamps David Fincher's mark on Hollywood as someone to be taken seriously with this piece of art. Coming off directing Aliens 3, which massively failed at the box office, damaging his directing debut reputation. The lead up to Seven was not promising whatsoever, but soon this movie established itself as one, of, as one that will stand the test of time throughout this style and vision seen throughout Fincher's eyes. It sets one of the strangest records in terms of being one of the slowest movies to reach 100 million at the box office, which, com- which confirms the fact that people were not really rushing to see this film because of the reputation of David Fincher. However, once word got out that this film was um, you know, a masterclass, it slowly grew and still is an instant classic, being studied in film classes today and introducing a style and vision in one of the greatest contemporary auteurs in David Fincher. Fincher was well established before Seven, but as a great music director, working with the likes of Madonna and Billy Idol before getting his feature film debut in the third Aliens movie, of course, following in the footsteps of Ridley Scott for the first movie and James Cameron in the second if it wasn't for Sigourney Weaver or the producers of Aliens 3, we probably wouldn't have heard of David Fincher ever again after the movie was released because he had a horrific time during the production of this movie. He stated in an, uh, in an interview that when he was working on this movie, it was for two years. He got fired three times, had constant battles over scenes with the studio, had no real creative input of his own in there, and Fox was just impossible to work with. Sigourney Weaver sided with his vision, even saying he had a promising career if he sticks to his vision, and then finally later getting on, uh, later given the chance by producer a few years later with this new screenplay Seven, which later reignited his career and obviously carrying on his vision and flair in films like Fight Club, Gone Girl, and Social Network. Now we clearly see his experience in music videos reflect in most of his movies like the intro re- uh, remix of Immigrant Song in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and more specifically the famous opening credit sequence of Seven which is one of the best edited and cryptic openers of a movie ever really setting the scene for this psychological ordeal we're about to go through and cleverly dropping the music from Nine Inch Nails in the background to further stress the theme of the next two hours. Now the movie was written by a relatively no- unknown screenwriter Andrew Kevin Walker who went on to do Sleepy Hollow and mm and after this he was really scraping um during this sorry he was really scraping the bottle of the barrel to sell this uh, this screenplay for seven and then he finally showed it to dave and keop and he read it and well the rest is history andrew kevin walker once quoted in a magazine i think it was rolling stones magazine and he said everyone will start laughing at you if you write a romantic comedy in his early years of writing but if you can write something that can shock an audience you're in for a winner because you don't have to finish with a happy ending and ergo the screenplay of seven was born he even admitted to not even knowing what the seven deadly sins were until researching it so 
right now I think I'll give you some context of it. The seven deadly sins are lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. And are thou the classified seven deadly sins taught in Christian teachings? Although they're never really explicitly mentioned in the Bible, the idea of these sins come down to the basic desire to immoralize a pure soul through this temptation of the devil, which breaks down into those seven categories. As the movie explores through the research montage sequence in the library of Morgan Freeman and the at-home sequence of Brad Pitt, we understand that the killer has drawn inspiration from the divine comedy from the second epic poem of Dante and the last chapter of the Canterbury Tales from Chaucer, where they specifically talk about the seven deadly sins. The movie clearly adds a lot of perspective for us already, so we don't have to do much work in terms of character development. Like I mentioned before, we've already seen this partnership in the detectives before. We've seen the young and the old partnered up together, you know, the one that's soon to be retired and the one that's just about to start up his career as a detective. And we've seen this in Men in Black and Lethal Weapon. So we already understand the dynamic of this partnership. We're also even aware of the serial killer and probably his motive to kill. He's already killing... Um, after the seven deadly sins, which is established by Morgan Freeman's character, where he, where he finds um, the word gluttony written by the floor, so he's obviously expecting seven more of these kills. So from the opening 20 minutes, we've already got this relationship with the cops and with the victims. And this is what Fincher allows us to see as the audience. And he wants you to get straight in there and make you feel like you already know these characters. And then giving you this situational case, Fincher allows you to see or not to see th certain things. And that includes the killings. Now, even though John Doe, who's the alias of the serial killer, who is down as the most horrific and sadistic killer in cinematic history, you never actually see him kill anyone on screen. And David Fincher does this on purpose. We only see the non-kinetic image of the aftermath, the messages, and the detectives always being one step behind John Doe. And from this, we're brought into this vision of Fincher right away, we, uh, right away, where we are the detectives. We follow Brad and Morgan everywhere, looking constantly for clues after the crime has been committed. Like I mentioned in my last podcast, in Crimson Tide, it's dramatic irony. We only know as much as Mills and the Somerset, so we also act as the detectives, and we only find out the big reveal when they find out the big reveal right at the end when they meet Kevin Spacey. The eerie backdrop of the movie shown over a seven-day period which cleverly and probably irrelevantly matches the number of sins. We have no idea if Fincher does this on purpose or if he's provoking us to work as detectives as the viewers at home. There are loads of subtlety and clues throughout the movie in terms of when the numbers appear on screen or what we should see or what we shouldn't see. For instance, the sloth victim is found on the third floor. Sloth is the third deadly sin. Or when Somerset lists all the sins one by one and when he lists envy at the last has the last one, he looks at Mills, foreshadowing his involvement of this particular sin later on in the climax. Even at the start of the movie, all the buildings start with a number seven. The delivery of the infamous box is scheduled to be there at seven PM, and then exactly seven minutes before the end, we see a still frame flash of an image of Gwyneth Paltrow's head. So he has subtly shown these reoccurrences of these signs in terms of the number seven. And we have to draw our own conclusion if he's just being clever or we need to pay attention to who the seventh victim is because essentially after the seventh victim, the movie's over. So it's a very interesting approach to a style and debut vision of how Fincher brings you into this movie. This movie exploded when the film got to grips with most of the world. It was called a cinematic masterpiece. And like I said earlier, it started this new age of cinema. 
largely due to the direction of David Finch in where we see the sharp but dire outlook on life and also in terms of just quality storytelling leading up to something that isn't always happy which David Finch has sort of carried out in his upcoming movies like Fight Club, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button and of course Gone Girl. All these films explore a beautifully told story only not to really resolve at the end but at the same time gives you that journey and experience through the movie. Of course, this was the first of three collaborations between David Fincher and Brad Pitt, where they would later work together on the movie Fight Club and then later again on The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And the only reason Brad Pitt took this role was to sort of escape this stereotype image of him being this sort of sexy playboy. And he did a film prior to this movie called Legend of the Falls, and he wanted to sort of escape this stereotype. Now, at the time of filming, Brad Pitt was actually dating Gwyneth Paltrow, and David Fincher had his eyes set on Gwyneth Paltrow for a role, and he had a really hard time convincing her to do this movie because Gwyneth found it quite dark and uh, just a bit too daunting. It was Brad Pitt who was the one who managed to convince her to do the movie, and Fincher went on to say that she's the only ray of sunshine in this movie, which he actually emphasizes in all of her scenes because he actually lights her up more than her the co-stars in a very subtle way. So again... Fincher uses his vision and sort of subtlety that, you know, gives that sort of symbolic meaning towards uh, most of the characters. Now, Morgan Freeman was actually becoming really well recognized at the time. He started his careers in his mid-40s, which is actually quite late for an actor. But he he shot straight into the appeal of the audiences with this sort of gentleness about him and playing these genuine bolstering roles that he brings so well to his characters with this use of his effortless expressions and soothing voice. And he already had three Oscar nominations leading up to this movie, one of which he actually... Um, almost won during the uh, the shoot of the movie for his leading role in Shawshank Redemption, which he didn't win, unfortunately. The other two was from, um, I think it was Draven, Driving Miss Daisy in 1990, and then I think a few years prior, he got another Oscar nomination for Street Smart. He actually went on to, actually, uh, he went on to win um, in 2005, I think, for Million Dollar Baby, which was um, Clint Eastwood's film with Hilary Swank. Very good film. And the same year, Morgan Freeman worked on Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman and Cuba Gooden Jr. And of course, Kevin Spacey, who brings a face to this mysterious serial killer in this somewhat cameo appearance in Seven. It was deliberate to leave his name out of all the advertisements and trailers and all the lead up towards this movie. Fincher made sure he didn't attend any premieres or talk shows and wanted the big reveal of John Doe to be a complete shock to the audience. He was coming off a, uh, an Oscar win from Usual Suspects as Best Supporting Actor. And this was, again, another flawless performance from Kevin Spacey, really adding depth and almost seducing his motive to the audience with his intense but yet reserved performance in the little time he has on screen. The secret of the casting of the villain was so, was so especially effective after Spacey, just five months prior, did win the Oscar for Usual Suspects, where he does play a villain. And it sort of helped the audience easily relate that Spacey is, in fact, John Doe. Kevin Spacey easily convinces John Doe as being intelligent and showing great passion in his master plan. And that may be what makes him evil, but what makes him a great villain is his care and precision in all of his murders. As mentioned before, we never see Spacey commit any of these murders, so it's left up to our imaginations when we finally put a face to the killer. Fincher, of course, honours his performance from listing him first in the closing credits and then once again in the main credits, of course, both at the end of the movie. With this amazing cast and this really enigmatic storyline, we now have one of the classics of the thriller genre. 
The real partnership of those two detectives really sell the movie, and it comes down to the performances of both actors who really play well off each other. The scene that really explores both characters and maybe even the film, again, it's due to the precise cinematography and direction of this movie, and it's the scene where Somerset goes to the library and does his research, and it's actually juxtaposed with Mills doing his own research at home in his apartment while Tracy's there as well. And it's beautifully done with sort of the backdrop of these sort of very depressing Johann Sebastian Buck. And this idea of this contrast between the two characters, especially visually shown in this library sequence, has so many hidden layers. The juxtaposition of both detectives doing their police work in their own environment really stamps an authorization on our thoughts on them. Somerset choosing the library after hours, dressed in a suit as he's alone. He's reading Divine Comedy and Canterbury Tales in this sort of majestic church-like library pro-esque cathedral and highlighting key phrases to help better the case he's composed peaceful and he has a real sense of calmness and control fincher then decides to intercut these scenes with mills who's at his apartment in this scruffy untucked shirt doing more recognizable police work going through gory and gritty photos of the crime scene while sipping on a beer and the cinematography is so key in this sequence as he intentionally follows somerset in the library connoting that we should follow his words his movements the camera moves when Morgan Freeman moves. We see, lit, we, see, we see him lit up in an elegant way when he's reading, almost angelic. The shots, are shot, the shots are done beneath him, so we're looking up at him, so we look up to his character and respect him. Mills, on the other hand, shown from a dark and outside perspective, almost positioned with something between him and the camera, most notably when Tracy looks at him through the wooden barrier in the apartment when she's woken up, showing that Brad Pitt is actually trapped from his own girlfriend and completely alone, which sort of foreshadows that Brad is a victim of one of these sins. He just doesn't know it yet, but the cinematography taunts at this. And even early on in the movie, when we first get introduced to Brad and Morgan's character, we have the same pattern. We are shown them in the bleak city. The location is purposefully not revealed. It's a fictional city of constant rain and urban decay that mirrors the general tone of the movie. When Morgan Freeman moves, the character moves, but when we follow Brad, the camera just keeps on moving until he catches up or is shot down on him because we need to feel sorry for him. The opening sequence shows a lot of barriers, this sort of prison cell iconography done where they are walking through the city. Of course, the rain adds to this negative atmosphere in the air. It's very convenient that the only day when there is no rain is number is the day seven where we get to the twist and climax of the movie and we have this sort of image of John Doe being blinded by the sunlight, hinting that he is about to complete his masterclass and finish and almost kind of glorifying his, his success with this use of weather or perhaps we have shined a light into all of this darkness because we now know who the killer is and why he's done it so most of the scenes we see of brad are shown from an angle a little higher above his eye line and always in the background a symbol of barriers and shackles one can even stretch the assumption that during the library apartment montage we see brad pitt shot from a god angle which is um, a shot right above your head and brad actually looks up and spreads his arm in exhaustion while he's going through the crime photos and it almost looks like an image of jesus christ on the cross this sort of image of brad suffering sort of juxt you know mirroring the jesus christ crucifixion hints of his sin clearly building up throughout the movie and shown very subtly with someone bumping into him right at the beginning of the movie and it's a great piece of acting from brad as he just turns around for like a few seconds and notice in that scene how the camera actually carries on following morgan freeman while brad pitt's come to a complete standstill and trying to see who this person is and it's this little moment showing this sort of ticking time bomb emotion he has in him and eventually revealing that he is guilty of wrath so David Fincher really did bring a certain degree of vision and thought into every single detail of this and, of course, knew exactly how to portray or even hint at our feelings towards these characters through 
the mise-en-scene, the camera work, the lighting, and of course the casting and performances of these great actors. This film explores many themes and it sort of changed the thriller genre into what it is now. It took a swing at buddy cop genres and also at the crime genre and basically reinvented this movie that would be the stepping stone into redefining thrillers and even crime movies for years to come. The whole premise of the ending where we have the villain actually succeed is something that wasn't really explored in the movies during the 90s and it was a very realistic outlook on crime and even provoking audiences to look into his reasoning and even research the ideas of the seven deadly sins. And so Something this film introduces, which was quite lost in movies up until then, was um, a debate. Conversation over the idea and motive of John Doe and how convincing his dialogue was when he was trying to explain himself and why he did it. The fact that he too recognises that he has one of the sins, he's aware that he must be punished and therefore seducing our thoughts towards his somewhat significant motive. This is the formula of a great movie, a convincing and somewhat relatable motive from the antagonist. It's a very slippery slope to talk about because there's sins that still exist on a daily basis across the world today. And the way Spacey delivers the monologue, especially the part where he says, we see a deadly sin on every street corner, in every home, and we tolerate it. We tolerate it because it's common, it's trivial. We tolerate it morning, noon, and night. And it's so powerful because he's not wrong. We have people who put pride above all else. We have people who seem to can't get through a day without posting a picture of themselves on social media. We have acts of anger and revenge in the name of injustice and sometimes envy. The repercussions of murder and injustice causing worldwide wrath and chaos. We have people eating themselves to death, doing crazy diets, eating crazy things, and consequently causing the unhealthiest era of humans to date. We have people driven by money and only measure themselves by money and not love. And it's, not be- and it's becoming an innate thing because now we have social media and awareness now. We have advanced technology that denies us the opportunity to do things or learn things for ourselves. We have become, or we're becoming, known as the sloths of this last century. The divorce rate just keeps going up, caused by utter lust, defended by people who are too proud to see the other views. The lust is just caused by misinterpretation of being envious, and you see this vicious cycle that this world is all too familiar with. It's literally trivial. It's morning, it's noon, it's night. Lust, greed, sloth, pride, wrath, envy, and gluttony. There is no denying the truth in some of what John Doe says, but this is what makes it so powerful that the motive of this 1995 film still stands strong, even more so today than when the film was made. As Hitchcock said, the greater the evil, the greater the film. So that's all for today, and thank you for listening to another episode of Film Exploration with Ash Hurry.